Welcome to the Lojo Show. I am your host, Loverture Jones. I am the founder and managing partner at BlackRock Engineering and Technology. I have over 21 years of cybersecurity experience, and I am honored to be able to bring some of that experience to you. If you have been following us on social media, you have seen the announcements for this exclusive series with Katie Arrington. We have given Katie a platform to let loose and let us know what the real deal is. A little about Katie. Katie Arrington is the former Chief Information Security Officer for the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense Acquisitions and Sustainment, in which her office worked to integrate security into future defense acquisitions, providing industry with a framework for which to protect defense information as it is used to create our nation's most important defense products, technologies, and capabilities throughout their life cycles. In addition, Katie was also the Department of Defense's lead for supply chain risk management for the FEMA and HHS PPE COVID efforts, as well as Operation Warp Speed. We are very excited for this series, exposing the truth about DOD security. Katie provides an inside, on-the-ground point of view, and we are eager for you to hear her perspective. Please join us for this great series, and we hope you enjoy. So what we have going on right now is a bunch of bureaucrats um, who, you know, for all the, I would say the road to hell was paved with really great intentions. Um, you know, the, the Small Business Administration, nobody wants to make small businesses mad, um, you know, give them, an, you know, an uncompetitive advantage, you know, capability where they're not going to be able to, you know, survive. Um, and, you know, the overall culture in the DOD right now is so risk adverse. I mean, it's it's like they're the anti-DOD, um, that they're, you know, they're letting the opportunity slip through their fingertips. And, you know, the reason why I'm doing this podcast and why I'm becoming vocal about this is that I'm allowed to now. And we need to get the truth out there about, you know, what it really means, you know, why we did what we did, um, the, you know, the background to it, the incredible amount of inertia that it took within the department to change culture. And then, you know, with the change of administration, the culture reverted right back to where we were. We, we as a nation deserve better. Um, your tax dollars deserve better care and they're not getting it. And I, you know, that's one of the reasons why I went into the DOD. This is, this is a passion for me. This isn't something that I do, um, you know, uh, as a career, this is my life. I, it's, it's crazy. This is like, I care so much about where our country is going to be in the next 50 years. Um, I stay awake at night. I've got four grandchildren. I worry about them and I worry about what we're handing over to them. So the time is now folks. And I said it again and again, you know, for years, um, I was speaking to everybody. And, and even when I ran for Congress, um, this is not something that we can put it into the back burner. This is everything. This is the center part of what makes America free and we're losing it folks. So, uh, I'm excited for this series and to, uh, you know, get down to the, the down and dirty of it all. Awesome. Hey, Kate, so I think one of the, probably the unique backgrounds that you have here is that you've started your own company you've had the entrepreneur portion of this as well right um so oh, yeah. i think as you speak about things like small business right and then your transition to politics can you tell us a little bit about how that came to be and uh how though your passions began to kind of drive that career track that you took well i was born on a cold day in december in 1970 in fairfax virginia to a, a father who is a cia uh, uh employee and a mother who is an activist. 
and and if you can't tell folks, I'm the middle of three girls. Um, so it started a long time ago. Um, I was born into, and I don't want this to become a political conversation. It's just relevant to how I came about. Um, I was born into a family of Democrats, my whole family, lineage, many, many, many generations. Um, and I was a Republican, uh, and I, I'm going to say not a Republican. I was an America first kid, right? I love my country. I love what we offer here. But I know that for us, you know, it's just like whenever you get onto an airplane and the flight attendant who is not there to serve you vodka, although I do appreciate that she does or he does, that their job is to protect you in the event of an emergency, to give you the best opportunity for safety and, and to save your life. And what do they say at the start of every flight? Um, when the oxygen mask deploys, put yours on before you can help anybody else. And that really has been the premise of everything that I've done my entire life. Um, went to high school, uh, uh, grew up in Fairfax, moved when I was probably in my mid, uh, you know, formative, formative years um, to upstate New York, graduated high school. I'm a Corcoran Cougar, class of 1988. Woohoo! Go Cougars! Um, that's in Syracuse. Uh, I went to Canisius College for two years. Uh, met my first husband. I was bartending uh, at FU over Christmas on a break. And in walked this five foot seven Captain America, uh, buzz cut, blue eyes. Um, you know, this is circa, gosh, 1989, 90. Um, he was wearing the mock turtleneck from the Gap and the plaid Gap pants. Um, of course, that were cinched at the ankles, if anybody else can remember that. That's how we used to do it. And, um, you know, fell in love, uh, met him in, uh, I said, over Christmas break, uh, January, uh, got engaged in February, and I was married to him in May. I became a military spouse of an enlisted, an E3, uh, U.S. Army Infantry, 11 Bravo, a grunt. Uh, and we moved to Fort Drum, New York, where he precisely told me about a week after we were married that he was getting deployed and started my life um, of going to many technical schools. Um, and working, and it, that took an entire, you know, um, journey unto itself, but that's a whole nother podcast series of, of education and, and why uh, we fail our military families so often. Um, now that we have online uh, technical schools and universities, it's good, but we still don't have a common core curriculum that's accepted universally to all academics. Um, so every time a military spouse or military members transfers, um, and they want to go to a school, um, they change, uh, whether it be, you know, they need to take one or two classes in person, and, and that the core classes aren't uh, accepted. So they have to take those again. And, and I joke around, but I'm dead serious. I took accounting 101 nine times. Um, so I never had the privilege of getting and obtaining a degree. I have more college credits than a doctor, um, somebody with a PhD, but I don't have a degree. So let's put that first things first, that degrees are critical in some areas and other areas, life experience, um, apprenticeships, um, uh, hold the same amount of value. I firmly believe that our military members, our NCOs, uh, when they uh, finish their military career, we have put millions of dollars into training them. Um, and you can't tell me that they don't have capability. If you're a 35 Sierra, um, and you have been in the Army intel and, and security uh, environment, 
after 20 years, you don't have what it takes to have a four-year degree build up an experience, you're dead wrong, and we need to capitalize on that. Um, but in any case, uh, back to my life story, uh, married uh, Doug uh, and got into international freight forwarding, believe it or not. Um, I worked in a company in my great disdain from China. Uh, I learned at a company called Travel Chair in Gig Harbor, Washington. Uh, Doug was stationed in Fort Lewis. I was a working uh, mom of two. And, you know, uh, Larry uh, invented or, or paid for the patents on the first collapsible camping chair. Now, do you have a collapsible cam camping chair in your possession? I have a collapsible camping chair. <laughs> you want, you, you want, this is how, this is how we started. And this is how long wow. I've been in this war with China. So let's go, let's go back to 1997. Woo. Al Gore, thank God he created the internet. The world was changing. And I'm working at this company called Travel Chair Company in Gate Harbor, Washington. Larry and Candace Peterson owned it. Now, Larry had spent a copious amount of money engineering this, this chair that would collapse because he had two daughters and he was going to all these sporting events and needed a place to sit. So he went through all that effort, got the U.S. patent on that, and did the production in Gig Harbor, Washington, and was selling to companies like REI, um, you know, high-end um, outdoor experience companies, right? And I worked for Larry, um, head of sales, and he said, you know, we're growing capacity. So Larry, you know, we packed up and we went over to the Asian market to find manufacturing facilities that could ramp up with our production. So we, we go, we meet with several different countries, and we end up in China at this production facility. We sign these contracts. We go through incredible um, length to make sure that these people, the, the, the individuals who own these particular production facilities, you know, you have to provide meals, you have to provide so many different things. We do that and life is great. Um, sales are booming. And I walk into a, a big box store. It starts with a W and ends with a Mart. And for $19.88, is a version of this collapsible camping chair nine months later. And I immediately flip my Razor phone open, dial, that's how long ago, remember the flip phone? I dial Larry and I tell him to get his butt over to the store. And we're, we buy 10 of these chairs, we run to the warehouse and we just start ripping them apart. What's, and there's slight nuances. There are rivets that are different, the different fabric, the way they've adhered, the, uh, fabric to the chair is slightly different. Uh, the, the train guy would catch it, but the average man, no. Well, folks, that's when I just, I really understood what China was doing. And I got very active about going against that, that we had all these deals and, and, and policies and, and, you know, uh, treaties and, and trade deals in place, and they were ignoring them. They were stealing our IP. Um, and it wouldn't hold up in the U.S. court because they would change a rivet or they would change a, you know, a, a specification or change a height dimension. And the patent wasn't identical. Therefore, you know, unless you had copious amounts of money, you couldn't sue them. You wouldn't. And, and what would be to gain, right? You'd spend all the money on legal fees and they'd still continue to do what they do. 
So you got to realize, I really had a disdain for um, people who didn't believe America first back then. I felt bad for Larry and Candace. I felt bad for all the employees there. Um, and then, you know, I, I ended up working at an international freight forwarder um, and uh, expediters uh, went there with them. Um, you know, 9-11 happened and I decided I wanted to move to Charleston, South Carolina to be closer to my family. Um, I had two kids. Um, the day of uh, 9-11, I had two children that were with their their in school and with their after school program. I was in New York and their father was in uh, in the DMZ. And uh, if anybody doesn't know where that is, that's not a fun place. It's the, 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 the wasteland between North and South Korea. Um, and my two kids were alone. And I made a vow to them that, you know, being a military wife, I was done with it. These kids had to come first and um, that, you know, we were going to be near family. So I moved to Charleston, South Carolina um, and started my own company. Um, it originally uh, went down there and started working with expediters. Uh, didn't, you know, wasn't making the traction that I needed to provide a lifestyle for my, my family, to provide for my family. So I started a company, um, a franchise, a Breakfast Club of America, did that, sold that off, got into commercial real estate, um, started buying land and developing it, became the first woman-owned um, land development company in South Carolina. Um, I'm self-made. Uh, by the time I was 40, I had made my first million. Um, by the time I was 43, I'd lost my first million um, because of the recession. And, you know, because I was involved in land development, um, you know, and the housing market crashed, um, I had been um, in a building with a company called, I was actually building a building for a company called Booz Allen Hamilton. And the, and I will say the, uh, the, the, the gentleman who was running that office I had been working with him for about a year and he was just like, you know, you are probably one of the most well, you know, you, you understand how pieces of puzzles fit together and how to get people motivated to get things done. And they offered me a job um, in business development. Um, and this is back for the listeners uh, when Spayawar, it's now NIWIC, but when it was Spayawar was doing the, uh, Oh gosh, I can't even remember the the contracts, uh, the pillar contracts. Do you remember those? Lojo, are you there? Yes, yes, I am. I, I mute the oh, I, mute, okay. I, mute, I muted so that the sound quality stays up. Um, are you talking about when they were doing like the NMCI component and those pieces too, as far as uh, uh, through those contracts as they were coming along those? Or are we talking about the pillars? No, oh, no, the five no. pillars. The five pillars. The C, the, the pillars. The Seaport yes, Pillars? Yes, yeah. Yes, yeah. Yes. Seaport E. So, well, before that, well, before it became Seaport E, it was the, the Pillars in Charleston. And, mm -hmm. you know, I went to Booz Allen and I put the teams together. Um, and I read, which, you know, William Padgey, you know, it's really odd is when you talk about things, things come back to you. William Padgey was the director of contracts back then. And when I read the initial um, RFP, I said, oh, there's a loophole here. And I went back to Booz and I told them what the loophole was and I set them up for success, but basically it set the pillars up and now, you know, it was a waiting game and there really wasn't much business development being done. So I said, you know, I'm kind of, I, if, if anybody hasn't known me, I'm a little bit hyper. Um, 
And I took a job with another small business um, to do the same thing. Basically went in there to set up their, their, their strategy for the pillars. And uh, I worked for a company called Centuria. And, uh, you know, I, I will give, um, you know, big props to the, the ownership over there. Um, they took a risk. I went in and said, hey, um, I know I can win all of these five pillars as a prime. I know I can do it. And I can win these niche offset contracts that they had. There was a, a, a two that we were bidding on. And, um, you know, I, I will give Kevin Burke all the, the props in the world. He said, you're crazy, but if you can do it, do it. And I locked myself and, and a, a few key members of the team, um, you know, into a room and we wrote the, the RFPs, um, did the teaming, wrote the proposals and submitted. And don't you know, I won every single one of them. And unprecedented. This is a Navy command, Spay War is a Navy command. And at this point, Centuria's big claim to fame um, was working uh, the, uh, um, the WSR-88 Doppler, um, the, the radar, uh, WSR-88D Doppler radar, um, and working with the FAA and working with um, CalISO, which is an energy program and the, uh, in California and with the National Water um, Waterways um, Agencies. Anyway, uh, won the first task order, which was a $50 million task order for Navy work. And it was only because I understood the loophole of that contract and I of the RFP and I was able, and here what the trick was. So when William Padgett wrote this, right? They, they wrote it and they said that if you weren't on a team at the time of award, that you could be rolled onto a team, okay? But you couldn't be on another team. So if your prime had lost, everybody on that, that, that prime's teaming agreement had no home. So the first thing I did was when, and I knew that was gonna happen because they said they were only going to award, you know, so many. I knew that there were gonna be losers out there. So I, I went and spent more time researching who my, my, my competitors were and how to get their, you know, small businesses that had niche work that was really relevant to upcoming work. And I did it. And this one company, I said, you, you don't have a team. I can roll you on. Um, I will give you 49% of the work share. I have to take 51% because I'm the prime. But two small businesses ended up taking this major piece of work. And that, you know, I, I gained some notoriety and fame in doing that, you know, because I read the entire RFP and I didn't look at it like government. I looked at it from a business perspective, right? William Padgett wrote it as a government. He had been in the government, didn't understand that people like me existed, right? We're, we want to find a loophole, right? I want to find a way to make my company successful. That's how capitalism, you know, we find the way to be successful. So I did that and then I ended up starting my own company um, and selling it off um, to work at a company called Dispersive Technologies. And I fell in love with this technology. It was disruptive. It was bleeding edge. Um, and cyber had just become such, um, and, and all through this, this time, and this is not like you know a, a month, these are several years of evolution. Um, when I first started at Booze, um, I was in the meeting and, and Renee Castro, he was leading the booze office um, back then and Heather Walker was working there. 
and they were using all these acronyms. And I was being tasked with the cyber portfolio. That's like um, global so resilience, I, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. Global resilience teams? So what, yeah. <laughs> yes. And so what I did is I went, um, I, you know, I never let them see sweat, right? And I, I've been an avid uh, reader, researcher my entire life. I, I don't know how not to, but I went to Barnes and Noble. Um, I picked up books on coding for dummies, networking for dummies, um, acronyms uh, for the Department of Defense and federal government. I immersed myself. You know, I've, I've been a lifelong learner and it's not, you, I, will not, I will never say that I am a good coder developer, but I understand the, the functional core elements and how to make them work. I understand what it takes to, to, to develop and comprise a network. I understand the components that, that enter into a network. And I also understand resiliency. So I, I had taken all that, um, you know, and I'm at dispersive and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get into the DOD. And um, this is really a funny story and it, it sticks degrees of separation, but there's always a reason. So remember I talked about my first husband, Doug, the one that was in the army. Yes. Well, he had gotten out, but then to be near the kids and, and, and to, to try and work on our marriage, which we weren't able to salvage, but he is a dear friend today. I have no bad words to say about that man. He is my hero. Um, but in 2007, um, he was in Iraq on May 24th, an IED uh, lit up his Humvee. He was blown out of the turret. He lost his entire team. They burned to death, but he survived. And at that time, the MRAP uh, was going into production. And on LinkedIn, I had read a story that included a guy who was the PEO of the MRAP, right? His name's Kevin Fahey. And I find him on LinkedIn. I email Kevin Fahey and I, on LinkedIn and I tell him about how grateful I am for everything he's done. Um, I tell him about Doug. I tell him about everybody that died. And that he, what really had impressed me about Kevin is when he was going through the acquisition milestones on this program, they wanted to take back six months to field test the MRAP. And Kevin said, it's a truck with armor. I'll field test it in Iraq. People are dying. And leadership like that isn't something you get every day in the DOD. Um, so I'd written him. Now, mind you, um, I, I, this, you know, I'm with Dispersive at this time. And in 2008 or 2009, I mean, many years later, I'm at a OTA conference, other a transaction authority conference up in, um, gosh, why is it not coming to me that, um, yeah, starts with an A, uh, our army depot, oh, it will come to me. And he is there talking, um, and I'm with this small company who's got this niche capability that you know no prime has it's patented to us and you know all of these large businesses are talking about otas uh picatinny i'm sorry we were up at picatinny but this comes to me and i stand up there's probably a good two thousand people in the room and i stand up and i said you know what i don't understand is why the large businesses are here saying that that otas are needed you need me and I'm a small business with a niche capability and you need me and you need to figure out how to make me work in your environment, not, you know, not you, the reverse. And Kevin's like, is that the LinkedIn lady? And the memory of that guy 
So he remembered uh-huh. my email. He goes, you emailed me on LinkedIn. Wow. 2,000 people in the room. I'm standing up asking a question. So when I get off stage, I go over, and he's like, well, tell me about your capability. So I tell him, and he is now the um, Heidi Shue is, this is, you know, this is in the, the Obama administration. Um, yeah. Heidi Shue is uh, head of acquisition. Um, she's the ASDA. And Kevin is the uh, uh, service acquisition executive for the U.S. Army. And he wants this capability put into, because at this point in time, we really thought that this capability would help at the battalion, you know, at the, at the micro level, right? Where we could free up bandwidth on, on the pipe, uh, you know, in the transmission pipes and host nation in their infrastructure so that we could have better communication between the, the platoon, the battalion, you know, et cetera. We couldn't get it into a lab. They were so backlogged. And there were so many steps. We were, you do remember when we went from DICAP to RMF? I do, yes. I was with the company and, and, and I took dispersive from DICAP to RMF. Then they wanted um, the, the CMMI. And we took, you know, I took a company who had no CMMI credentials from CMMI one to CMMI four. Um, and I did all that, right? And the more that I was doing this and involved in the cyber community, um, then Governor Nikki Haley appointed me to SD Cyber as a volunteer to help fix South Carolina cyber problems. This is um, when South Carolina leaked um, all of the uh, 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 social security numbers of the residents to the IRS right. and everybody, you know, oh, this is, right. But it wasn't, right? It was, it was something they omitted in the contract. They didn't encrypt it. cost too much and they didn't encrypt it. It wasn't rocket science, right? So I had gotten very much involved and I was sick and tired of seeing the same things, the definition of sanity is, you know, doing the same things and expecting a different outcome. And in my state, um, I was very frustrated by the fact that, you know, A, that the cyber aspect wasn't being taken care of. There were other imperatives that I was really bothered with about our roads, et cetera. And I ran for state legislator and I won. Um, and being that I was aboard on the part of SC Cyber, I wrote the South Carolina Cyber Emergency Plan, put it into effect, and then started going around the country and talking about other state legislators about how um, really um, they were insecure that cyber, you know, infrastructure, mainly critical infrastructure, was so important to the state survivability in, in a, a national emergency, uh, weather-related, but also if, if we were to have a, an, an, an adversarial attack on the homeland. And, you know, did that, um, and then, uh, you know, was very successful, you know, uh, was part of an emerging leaders program, really funny. Ashley Henson is now in Iowa as a congresswoman. She was in my, in my emerging leaders class. Um, and then I ran for Congress in 2018 because I didn't believe the guy representing me represented America first. And America first is not a, it should be a bipartisan thing, right? This should not be aligned with a, a political party. We as America should make sure we take care of ourselves so that we can take care of others, right? That's the first rule, like the flight attendant, right? The oxygen mask comes down. If I'm not breathing, I can't help you put a mask on. And for our country to survive, we have to put America first. You know, it's like in a marriage, right? And I talk about I talked about this in, in, in nausea, right? You've got to make sure that you're good. 
right? You have to have self-love. You have to like yourself to be in a marriage. You can't look for somebody else to give you what you inherently need to be a human being. You know, you have to like yourself. You have to love yourself. And at there are times you have to put yourself first in order to provide for your, your partner, right? For your children, um, for your company as a, as a, as a leader, um, for your team. You know, you, you have to say, I need to take care of this so I can be good for you there, right? Um, when I ran for Congress, um, I ran against a guy who wanted to put military members in Chinese sneakers because it saved 40 or 50 cents a pair of sneakers. And I couldn't get beyond that. Like, why would you put U.S. military in Chinese sneakers made in China? They have to be manufactured. The, the Berry Amendment's got to be, you know, like, let's take it seriously. China is kicking our ass. Now, remember, let's remember, kids, I've had this dislike for China since 1997. And I've watched, you know, the, the, the super box stores that import everything from China. And I've watched our supply chain get desecrated. I've watched it. And I call it, you know, you walk in and, you know, we went through a time after 9-11, we were all, you know, yay, go America. But that quickly refuted to, you know, I want more, right? I want it, if it's cheaper and I can get more of it, I want it, it's good. And life doesn't work like that. And China, you know, did some very, very bad things. So I ran for Congress in 2018 and horrible car accident after I won the primary um, I was on life support for a couple of weeks. Um, the, basically, the seatbelt severed me in half. I lived. My best friend who was driving, who also worked at Spayor, she lived. The driver of the other car was under the influence, and she died on impact. God is good to me. I lived, and I, you know, I believe my life is to be in service, and, and that only affirmed it. But I go on MSNBC, my first interview after this, and they asked me, what is the greatest immediate threat to national security, to U.S. security? And I don't blink an eye, bat an eye, I'm like, China? Now, mind you, this is 2018. Um, Russia collusions everywhere. Russia, 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 Russia. And I immediately text my friends in the Pentagon. And I say, guys, I just did an interview on TV. And I said the greatest national threat was China. And the word got to Mattis and, you know, he absolutely Katie dead spot on. And, and a few weeks after I did that, no, not even, I think it was like a week and a half later to support me in, in that, that I was calling China out in 2018 and nobody wanted to hear that Russia had the economy of the size of Italy, that they weren't as a near peer threat like we had thought they were. Our near peer threat was China, um, was Iran um, and Russia. and. Um, in any case, I never really, you know, all the while I was doing that, mind you, six degrees of separation, right? Kevin Fahey is now the ASD of ANS. He's the Assistant Secretary for Acquisition and Sustainment. And Ellen Lord was the undersecretary. Um, and I had met Miss um, Lord previous. Um, she had been telling me, like, listen, why are you running for Congress? Come work at the Pentagon. We need your help getting cyber, getting these, you know, acquisition contracts, the, the, the loopholes, but more importantly, we've got to get this 70-12 BFAR rule into compliance. People are, are checking the box and cyber matters and cyber, you know, and I'm very passionate about cyber, I, you know, I, in China and this. So um, when I lost the election, um, I got a phone call and they said, would you mind 
coming in and talking to us about potentially just coming out of the HQE. So um, that's a highly qualified expert. Um, now, there are certain people that will listen to this podcast, and I will call them out because they, they have made it very public, their opinion of me, John Weiler, uh, Christopher Parrish, two men that went above and beyond to try and defame my name um, because they didn't, you know, either they're, you know, they have an issue with the fact that I don't have a college education or that I was changing the culture in the DOD or, or that, you know, I was doing it too fast or there were, you know, they, they had a multitude of things that they would publicly put on LinkedIn that they disliked about me, that there was no hiding of their disdain for me. Um, but I did go in as the HQE and they said, take, we need somebody in acquisition and sustainment who understands the the ecosystem that we're involved in. And I'm like, oh, well, that's 300,000 companies and everybody's interconnected. Because my mind works differently. Like I see things that connect. I, I can't explain it. Like if I walk into a room, I, after meeting people in a room, I'll understand how they're connected to each other without them actually knowing each other. Like, oh, your husband or your wife or, or you, you know, you work at here and, you know, so-and-so works at here and your kids play sports here. I connect dots. That's my, that's my super, you know, my super oh, that, that seems to be the case because um, for, for my listeners out there, I, I think one of the things that goes unnoticed is that you operated with, uh, you know, with Spay War System Center Charleston for years. Yep. Right. Yep. And I don't think people quite understand how much of a circle that is in Charleston, South Carolina, and being in this industry and how that works within there. And then being able to one connect to be able, break you know, be in. able also wait, to communicate wait. and break in. Yeah. I, yeah. Actually, actually really break, break in. into that. Yeah. There are when companies Chris for years to do that. Mm-hmm. When Chris Miller was the um, executive director of Spay War, now he's over at the Navy and the Pentagon now on, on a program, but they had a, the pillar day, right? And much like my Kevin Fahey moment, I have my Chris Miller moment. So there are a thousand people there. They're announcing the pillars. I'm now with Centuria, right? I'm no longer booze. I've gone to a small business. And I stood up and I said, if you're not part of the good old boy network of Charleston, how do you become a good old boy? And the audience applauded because, listen, we're all thinking a lot of the same things. It's only a few of us that are dumb enough to open our big mouth and say it, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and breaking into the, that Charleston network and actually becoming part of the, the um, Charleston Defense Contractors Association. I was on the board of directors. I, did, um, I ran the summit for three years, the, the, the big summit that they did pre-COVID. Um, on women in defense, I built my network, but I built my network with them, knowing the, the, the touch that they had, because they were all bigs, right? We had Deloitte there, we had the Boozes there, we had the Lockheed Martins, and building that rapport and relationship, right? Taking that into the Pentagon was epic, because you know the first people I called when I got into the Pentagon and said, what's wrong? Were those people. The contractors, what are we yep. doing wrong? And when, you know, I, I joke around that, you know, they gave me a, a nice office. Um, I was in a cubicle when I first started there. And 
Um, you know, this is when David Nordquist was the deputy and Ellen Lord. Um, and this is when uh, Salva was the, the chief, the vice, um, in uh, 2019. And I will never forget this. You know, Shanahan, I think, was the, yeah, Pat Shanahan was the acting um, sec def. And they take six weeks and tell us what, how to make industry aware. And, and mind you, my job was cyber of the industrial base. Well, who makes our weapon systems? The industrial base. Who creates our critical infrastructure? The industrial base. So suddenly I came into acquisition and sustainment as a cyber, you know, I'm looking at it. And the next thing I know, I'm in charge of cyber for weapon systems, critical infrastructure, because that is the dip. And I, I you know, the, it's, a, it's legend how I rolled it out, but I went into the Nun Luger briefing room. Um, I had never given a brief to a military member of this rank. You know, here I am, the, the deputy. Uh, Secretary Norquist is there. Um, I have, you know, Dana Deasy, everybody in the room. And this was like my moment. And I just said, you know, you can either do what I'm advising to do. You have to make industry compliant through a third party auditing system. You have to also go to Congress and tell them you have vulnerabilities in weapon systems and infrastructure that you don't have the money to fix. You don't have the workforce, you don't have the time, but you have risk reduction strategies in there. Or, and in the back of the binders for all of the people in the non luga room, I put in that brief, the back part of that brief was how to learn Mandarin in 20 days or less. And I said, you either do these three or four things or you learn Mandarin. And Nordquist looked at me and he's like, she can't be serious. Did she just say that? And I said, yes, sir, I did. Because I didn't go into the Pentagon as somebody with military experience. I was a wife of somebody in the military. I was a defense contractor who was really pissed. But moreover, I was a taxpayer scared to death. And with that started the, what originally started as the CMMC. And why it was so critically important is because you know, President Obama signed an executive order in 2015 that said all to create the NIST 800 Special Publication 171. We already have the NIST 53, but remind that, you know, that was for federal systems. 53 was for federal systems. NIST 171 was for non-federal systems. And there was a big argument about that. Um, but we had stood up the pickets to protect critical technology task force. I was basically doing everything with General Murphy. I mean, he was put in a really crappy position because, you know, we do things in the DOD. And when Congress writes these amazing things to do, they A, don't put any funding behind it. So it's an unfunded requirement. And there's no authority given to it. Poor General Murphy was put in, in charge of creating, you know, this is right after we had the... Uh, Navy had the big incident, and I'm winking on the podcast, um, and we had just been, uh, you know, MITRE had just delivered, delivered on compromise, and do you remember the Hondo Gertz memo of 2019? It goes in infamy, uh, 2018. So Secretary Gertz, in the fall of 2018, writes this memo and says, I want the highest and the best cybersecurity on all Navy programs. Well, that's going to cost. Right. Yep. And all of those things, it all led up to 
that day in the Pentagon. And they said, okay, well, how do you make the industrial base compliant? They're already saying they're compliant. I said, I know. And there's false claims acts out on two defense contractors right now, which were just recently settled. And this is in 20, this is in January of 2019. I'm talking about this. Now we're in 2022 and they just, I said, there, there are a multitude of false claims acts that are starting to bubble up where people who are in cyber in the defense contractors are furious that they're checking the box that they're compliant and they know that they're not, or they have a poem, you know, we're going to get to it. And nobody ever gets to those poems, right? They're they're just, they're things. And our adversary lives in that gray space. They're having a blast. They're buying up our supply chains. They're exploiting. And you know why Obama wrote the executive order to create the NIST 171. Do you know why? It's really kind of cool. Trivia question. Oh, so tell, me, everybody tell me. Let me, let me. let me hear the real. Let me hear the real part of this one. <laughs> Let's hear. So the F-35 took off, right? You as a U.S. taxpayer, a NATO weapon system was put together, right? Isn't it odd that the J-22 took off six months later with the exact same canopy flaw as the original F-35. Now, either China has ESP or somebody in the industry leaked it. Did they leak it on purpose? Nope. But you see, China is a, is a you know, the, the silent dragon. They were not, you got to remember, they're dynasty, right? They're not, and, and their culture flips every 250 years, new form of communism or dictatorship comes every 250, 300 years, China, but they still are 1000% a whole of government approach to making life for the dictator who's ever in charge, great, and the people are oppressed. They're workers. It hasn't changed any, right? Not, not much has changed. But after World War II, the world broke up into three distinct AOs, right? We, we feared we went into the Cold War with Russia, right? And we are still trying to figure out, because we asserted ourselves in Asia, how we fit into Asia. But China knew they were, they were not happy with us. And then as, as the years progressed, Carter, when Carter uh, took over, he inserted himself into a way into the Middle East that forever caused a rift. Now, granted, he created the Camp David Accord. I think Jimmy Carter was probably one of the best, is one of the best humanitarians, worst, second only to Biden as president. But what he did is he really, do you all remember, and history has a funny, funny way of repeating itself. What was the grand gesture that Iran did on the moment that Ronald Reagan was sworn into office. They released the hostages. Do you remember? Oh, hang on. Yeah, they released yep. the hostages that day. Yep. Yep. Iran has not been our friend, right? And every single president has been trying to figure out what the heck do you do with Iran? Because they're, as bad, they're, they're the, the world's perpetrator of many, 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 many bad things, right? Harbors for terrorists. There. You know, right now they're threatening nuclear weapons. Well, the way I look at it is the world went into these three categories after World War II. You had the Russia, you know, that, that bad, the bad zone there. You had China and whatever was going over there. And then you had the Middle East. None of those three entities wanted us to be successful. 
Now, Japan, we rebuilt. After we nuked it, we rebuilt it, right? We didn't rebuild China. We, we did. We ended up doing it in the late 70s, in the 80s, and in the 90s. We sure as hell did. And when we got greedy as Americans about, you know, cheaper, more, 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 we desecrated our industrial base. And China wrote a 100-year plan. They had no intentions that this was going to take you like a week, right? They went out with a very strategic 100-year plan to become the global domination. That's what they want. Economically, defensively, supply chain, all of it. They want to be the global dominators. And until we understand that premise, that, you know, we're never going to get good. So the, what, why Obama put that executive order into effect is because he realized China had kicked our ass. They had, they had looped us on the track field. And they had the same capability that the F-35 kit could provide in the J-22. Mm-hmm. And the light bulbs so, went off. Yeah. And so when you and look at we this... Been, oh, sorry. Yeah. When, oh, you, okay. when, you, when you guys looked at this and, and when we're talking about the Obama administration stuff on this, as well as you know what's being recognized more and more now, but not reacted to, is that on several fronts now, we now look at China now as a peer because military power, economic power, right? And then also when we look at their overall geopolitical um, you know, positioning and stuff too, across different countries that are primary sources for uh, very important materials and very important uh, imports and stuff too there. When we talk about China in Nigeria, we talk about China in Cuba, Venezuela, across the world at this point, and then also you mix in now military capabilities, you know, from there. This, when you look at it, is, wow, from a national security standpoint, China has an upper hand in two out of three of those areas right now. And it's it's only going to get worse, right, unless we get better. And the CMMC was a way that we could get a third party to go in and because the government didn't have the money, right? And oh, by the way, in the Obama administration, OMB screwed up and the industry screwed up big time because when they put the DFAR rule 7012 in, you know what they didn't do? Cost analysis. Nobody raised their rates. Nobody said, wait, 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 because everybody was just checking the box. Oh, two-factor authentication. Well, that, that's going to cost some money. How much is the government going to put, give me to do that? So when the condo Gertz memo came out in 2018, this all comes full circle, folks. Like I didn't, we in the DOD did not create this in a vacuum. It's like Hondo put that memo out. We need the highest and best security. Well, you, if you went and went to ADT and say, okay, I want the highest and best security on my home. Well, ADT would look to you and say, okay, here's the bill. And industry did that with the Navy. They're like, wait a minute, you can't do that. And I'm like, listen, you guys missed the boat when the 7012 clause came out. Nobody said this is going to cost money. You all just, you know, said, okay, we're doing it and check the box. Now I'm going to send a third party auditor in there to make sure you're doing it. And all hell broke loose. And the reason all hell broke loose is because I was willing, along with Ellen Lord, Kevin Fakey, Kim Harrington, um, you know, uh, Dave Bassett. We were willing 
to shake and break the culture because we wanted to protect America. And we didn't think it was going to be without cost, but at least we figured with the CMMC now, because we were going through this, you know, we could put it, my original thought was I would put a CMMC certification in, like where you put CMMI in sections L and M in the uh, RFP. Mm -hmm. But people threw their hands up, you know, crazy, you know, oh, you can't do that. I'm like, well, yeah, you can just do that. I mean, CMMI did it. It's a maturity model. I'm saying that this contract needs to have this. And, you know, it was industry that said, well, if we're not all good, we're not all understanding the standard. It really does no good because the weakest link is how they they get in. And they're 100% right. We're like, oh, shit. Now I got to go and I've got to make a rule change. And that's when the world changed. That's when everybody went wonky on it. And, you know, it was, I will say to this day, the greatest effort the Department of Defense with the industrial base to create something out of the inertia of just needing the right change for the right reasons at the right time. And it was all of us. It wasn't competitive in the fact that, you know, it was one company competing against the other. It was understanding at that time. It was the first time that I could show the DOD, but I could also show in the industrial base how they were all interconnected through sub-suppliers and sub-chains. That's why they ended up giving me the supply chain risk management. Because I was able to say, hey, listen, blank, blank, you don't realize it, but you're doing business with the, the, this company in China. And they're like, no. I'm like, yeah, you are. Let me show you. Yeah, and you know what? I, that's a, that's yeah. an interesting part and just kind of a quick even segue. The supply chain story that we're talking about here, right, is um, when you look at our large, let's say, defense contractors, right, but then also, more importantly, even our critical infrastructure, one of the things that we look at is materials, technology, chips, all those components that come together into assemblies that are sold to the DOD, and then also the um, and then also the components that support even our critical infrastructure, if we're talking about uh, power and utilities, right, you know, across the country. And so as we're looking at this and kind of, as you're looking at this from your position at that point, how, how did you actually approach working with the industrial base, not just the ones that are just aerospace and defense that people realize, but also those that are part of our critical infrastructure and services from there, your, you know, ADEs and stuff too from there, your, um, you know, Con Edison's and stuff too that are out there. How did you begin so, to kind of transition that? Oh, so Ellen Lord paved the way. She made um, all critical infrastructure compliant to CUI. She wrote a memo in the, in January or February of 2019. So people don't realize behind the scenes, I was talking to the energy suppliers because the Department of Defense is the largest buyer, the federal government is the largest buyer of energy in the country. I was talking to them and I'm like, listen, she's saying that your infrastructure is controlled and classified information. Therefore, you need to be NIST 171 compliant. And they were like, what? I'm like, yep. Rail, the, the railroads need to be um, NIST 171 compliant. Um, you know, the, the gas, the, the water, the electric, 
everybody. So although the world saw me talking to, you know, going around for 2019 and most of 2020 talking to the industrial base, I literally, with a very small team, and I mean small, Stacey Bosjanic, uh, Dr. John Choi, uh, Mr. Buddy Dees, are national heroes. It was literally us four. And I had Neil Jenkins, who now works at, at Noblest, as uh, my de facto chief of staff. And I mean, I worked those people as hard as I worked, right? 18-hour days. We were going to change the world. We had no money. We had to convince Congress. We had to convince the industrial base. And, oh, by the way, we had to convince all of our allied partners that this was the right idea. And you know what? We were doing it. Because what we were saying wasn't, isn't, to this day, listen, folks. Why did I get a hammer so hard on why landscapers on federal um, uh, uh, lands need to have um, a CMM level three certificate? Well, back then it was level three certification. And people were like, why? I'm like, well, when they bid, they get the plans of how much, you know, green space, where the cables are buried, where the security offices are buried, where the water lines are buried. They get all that so that they don't affect them in mowing lawns or putting in fences, et cetera. Do you know our adversary gets that? And they take that, right? The adversary also finds out what company, because we put it out for public information, uh, designed the keypad for entry. And because that company is designing that keypad for not just defense contractors, but commercial, well, how to reset that keypad is probably up on their website. Or you can YouTube how to reset the keypad for that, that company. You getting my drift here? Oh, absolutely. Our I mean, look at that. Yeah, good. And the CMMC was a way. So this is another fun thing. I mean, this, these podcast kids, you're going to have to listen to all of them because they are going to go, they're going to blow your minds. The, the reason CMMC was so critical to getting at that point in time was that because of contract privity, Lockheed Martin couldn't tell you in 2019, 2020, who was in the totality of the supply chain of the F-35. Because it, their, prime, their prime contract was with the subs, right? They had the subs. Well, then the subs had subs, right? And those subs had subs had subs. And Lockheed, because of contract privity, couldn't see all of who was in their supply chain. But you know, open source companies like Exeger could. They could say, oh, I can see how all these companies are interconnected. And that's why the CMMC was, uh, it's, it's pointless to do for just a segment of the industrial base. It's all or none. Because the adversary is already there. Do you remember the movie Phenomenon with John Travolta? I do, yes. And do you remember the, the premise was his, his, this tumor was getting larger in his brain, but it was creating more brain waves. He was thinking more. Correct. But, yeah, he was using more know, percentage I, of his I, brain. I, <laughs> yeah. I, I always love to say Hollywood, and I'll give you a few more examples. Hollywood has always told us what's coming. They just tell us in a different way. But he said the, 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 one of the, the tracks within the storyline is that his best friend's a farmer, and they're trying to create all these different ways to get the bunnies from coming into the farm, right? They're building these fences deeper, 
higher, they've got electricity, et cetera. Like the whole movie, there's, I think there are four different ways they build the fences to keep the bunnies from coming into the farm. And in the last moment, the last scene between the farmer and John Travolta, the, the character, and I can't ever remember the farmer's name, excellent actor. Um, John Travolta looks at him, he goes, you can't get the bunnies from coming into the farm. The bunnies are in the farm. Folks, the bunnies being China are in the farm. And they've been in the farm. And so is Iran, and so is Russia, and so is every terrorist organization around the world in some form or fashion. They're in your network. And the only way to get them out of your network is if everybody that touches your network understands the risk associated. That's what the CMMC was. And fought like a banshee while I was in the DOD. I had great leadership between Ellen Lord, David Nordquist, even Esper when he came on board. We were all, on, we got Congress. Do you realize I came into the DOD in January of 2019 and I was able to change the NDAA that year? to include the CMMC, that's unheard of. It's because it was a desperate need. And sadly, when I left, everything went to pieces. And that's on, the failure is on me that I didn't create enough of an ecosystem to support it. Some of the significance that you're talking about there with the NADA, with the NADA stuff too, with that, um, that's a whole different department and agency, right? Oh yeah, honey, I got Congress on board. Yep, I mean, I mean, I, 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 I didn't just get the three hundred thousand companies, and I don't mean to say it's. I was a big voice, right? But I also had Ellen Lord and Kevin Fahey saying the same things, right? But I convinced. Inter our allied partners, this was a good idea. I convinced the industry it was a good idea. I convinced the, the legislators it was a good idea. Everybody was on board. The problem is changing culture is risky, right? And if somebody isn't willing to put everything out there and say, I will never gain from this in my life financially, I just want to get it done for all the right reasons. That's Katie Arrington. I don't, I don't want to make money off of this. I just want to get it right. I got four grandkids. And right now, what we're turning over as far as, you know, our vulnerabilities, I mean, it, it, it boggles the mind. We have Russia invaded Ukraine. But do you know, remember I talked about that company, Dispersive? Mm -hmm. You know why Dispersive got started? Um, the gentleman um, who created that capability, he, came, he created it and patented it is because Russia turned off the nation state of Georgia's electric. Do you remember that? They just turned them off. Yes. Yep. And he created that technology so that that could never happen. He, he eliminated a DDoS attack man in the middle, right? Like, you know, it was, it was disruptive technology, but it's, you know, I used to say it was like the Mona Lisa is a beautiful picture. And what we do is we, that capability broke it up into as many different pathways as you would give me, uh, you know, software IPs that I could move it through. I would break it up. And every time I got to a new um, uh, 
nub or hot, you know, hub, I would change the encryption. I would change the 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 way that the 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 that piece of the Mona Lisa would go. And the only way to put it all back together was at the end user had the key to put the picture back together. And if any one of the puzzle pieces was missing, it told the you know the home base you know something's been corrupted in the file. Um, he created that technology uh, because of Russia, because they went in and turned off the nation state of Georgia. Russia also, people forget, um, in, gosh, I want to say it was in 20, um, France had a Russian spy in custody and Russia got mad and they wouldn't give him back. So Russia turned off the French banking system for a day and they got their, their spy back. You got to think these guys, you know, they, they've been messing, you know, fundamentally in our infrastructure. They've had some fun. I mean, you know, water um, departments have been breached. Um, electric companies have been breached. Um, it's not if, it's when. Um, we're at cyber war. I've been saying that for years. Um, it's, you know, the war of disinformation. It's the war of uh, deep fakes. It's the war of you know, um, if, if, and here's what I would say, and I used to say it in the CMMC, you know, it really, you know, acquisition, cost, schedule, and performance, right? Those are the basis of acquisition. If I develop a capability and I can deliver it um, at the cost that we agreed upon, but my adversary or competitor can deliver it cheaper because they've stolen my, my, my secret sauce, um, then that kind of goes out the window. And if I deliver it on schedule, but I'm delivering it and the the adversary has you know out you know produced the capability because they stole it. Does it really matter, right? And that's the performance piece, right? If the adversary is taken and built upon what I've created, and it's outperforming by the time I deliver on the cost, the schedule, and the performance, and it's null and void. Why are we doing it? And that's what we do. And I hope in this podcast series, we talk about, you know, what is wrong in the Department of Defense is why um, they're, they're not getting it done. Um, this isn't a new problem. This is an age old problem. Um, why we're still working on an acquisition framework that, you know, McNamara developed in the 50s and 60s. Um, why industry is being so, you know, waiting for the government to tell them to do something versus worrying about their brand, their their employees, their their you know, their, there are some that have done it, but others that are whining. And then let's get into the, the the ugly, right? You know, is it the government's job to maintain small businesses' livelihood? Is that really what your tax dollars should be doing? I mean, if if a why do we put more money into companies within the defense industrial base, small companies that can't compete, they're outdated, they're antiquated, and they refuse to make the investments to get to where they need to be. But yet we turn a blind eye if, you know, the restaurant down the street goes out or the service station goes out a business um, or, you know, or, or, or an or. They're all important to our economic base here in the United States. Why do, does the federal government use the DOD as this, like, you know, I say crutch for small business. Oh, well, you have to make sure that, you know, the, the federal government gives special contracts to, you know, this minority, this, that. It's like, listen, kids, if you can't provide the capability, you're a cyber company and you, you're not NIST 171 compliant, why do you say you're a cyber company? And then why is it my responsibility as a U.S. tax dollar to get you compliant? Nobody's helping my husband who's a land surveyor get compliant on his licenses. Why do we do that? Let's get into that. Let's ask the questions, right? 
Are we delaying the inevitable? Is it rational? And I may make a lot of people mad, but in the end of the game, it's your money, folks. How do you want it spent? And we're, we're in a crux. We're in a very bad place. Is it worth keeping that niche sole supplier going where the adversary we know has breached them? Or is it better to incentivize many to create, you know, competitive markets so that we're never reliant on one sole supplier again? And that goes globally and domestically. I think one of the things that really resonate here is that I think you provided probably one of the best explanations and clarifications of America first, right? And when we talk about our supply chain issues and stuff too that we've had, and I think when we even look at COVID right now, uh, look at COVID in 2020 and the vast effect of that as far as on our supply chains and the constraints that are there that we still feel right now, um, I think that does beg the question, right? Uh, why is DOD cyber so complicated? And then the other part is in looking at this as far as from uh, the view of, uh, of a citizen and one who has kids and grandkids too here on this side, um, that is very scary. That is very scary. It's, that one country can literally and, just pull the rug, <laughs> the carpet, the sea. Well, and you're the land feeling it right now. Yep. I just wrote a paper that I'm, I'm trying to get the Washington Times to publish on the chip fact of 2022. Folks, the main, you know, chips are in everything. If you have an electronic device in any capacity, you have a chip in it, right? Now, who is the main supplier of the core element of a chip? China. They yep. produce the silica. They're it is no longer. And the world. And sorry about that. Go ahead. <laughs> they, we have now, uh, no, so we, there, and why do they produce the silica? Because it can cause cancer. It's not a very, it's, it's, a, it's, it's taking sand and basically pulverizing and then putting an electronic, you know, uh, a, a, a electronic current through it. So it creates quartz so that you can slice it in thin, 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 thin wafers. Well, the silica, I think the cancer is called silicon siliconosis, but it basically creates a film on the lung and will kill you. China doesn't really care about their workforce. We know that, right? They're, they're expendable. But they're producing 64% of the world's silica and GAN, the, 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 the mineral components, right? And they're sending them to Taiwan for the, you know, China, um, Korea, they, they're doing some low level capability chips. They're not doing the high, you know, speedy cool stuff that Taiwan is doing, but China just needs to cut the supply of the silica chips, the, the raw material to Taiwan, and the world comes to a screeching halt. And, and our CHIPS Act wants to set up, which is absolutely, it's a whole other discussion. I ran the, the supply chain during the pandemic for acceleration for FEMA, HHS, and DOD. And I can tell you, the world is in a very, 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 very bad place. China owns a lot more than people realize. Um, they're feeling the effects of the pandemic, but China is, like I said, they wanna be the global dominators, right? So the generic pharmaceuticals that we, we get daily, right? We just say, oh, I need aspirin or I need bubbles, right? Or the patent runs out. Where do you think all that production goes? Doesn't stay here China. in America. 
bingo. And we come up with a, I'm hoping they publish my paper on, on the CHIPS Act and what we need to do to make it better. But my, my life, that's what I'm saying, this passion, right? My brain, it sees so much stuff. And I'm sitting here and I'm not the smartest person in the room. I never am, right? I thank God for that. I'm never the smartest person in the room. I just really have a really good superpower that I can see how everything connects. And I'm like, guys, this is so bad. This is so, so, so bad. Um, that's why while I was at the DOD, not only did I stand up the supply chain risk management uh, tools, I used Exeger, um, a little bit of Interos. Um, there's uh, the, the Navy has a capability. Um, inside the DOD, we started to create our own um, at, at Vanna. Um, I, I was trying to help companies illuminate their supply chains. The CMMC was going to be one of the, the things because they every license, you wouldn't necessarily know the company name, but the license number, you could validate that they were CMMC certified. So you could illuminate a supply chain by the license number. So the prime could actually understand, all right, I don't know who that company is. They're in my supply chain, but they're certified. That company isn't. They don't have a license number. That that whole, I mean, the, the CMMC was the start of trying to get risk reduction strategies across the industrial base for companies to understand your supply chain. And then that would help the, the government, the whole of government, look at what type of resources do we need to reshore in our supply chains, that we have them in either our allied partners or in our hemisphere, that we are never going to be subservient, and I use that word, subservient, to another country for our day-to-day -day survival. And the CMMC was the start of it. The easiest way to make a change is in the Department of Defense because acquisition and sustainment is over $630 billion of spend annually. It's a real easy fix. And bringing things to bear, like, you know, the problem with batteries is that most batteries are not produced in America. So creating green energy, we need, we need batteries. Okay, let's start, let's put the cart before the horse again, right? Batteries don't do well in heat. So if climate change is a real thing, and the globe has always been changing, right? I live in Charleston, South Carolina, which at some point was under an iceberg, the, the planet's changing and evolving. That, that's understood. At the rate, is how, how much humans are affecting it and, and how much humans aren't, I'm not a scientist, I don't know, although I do know I'm a woman. Um, I, I, I can give myself that one. But I also know that the dinosaurs went extinct like instantly. And what happened? Was it a meteor? Did the climate change? I mean, we've, there's a lot of things that we need to look at, but I can damn well tell you today, forcing the Department of Defense to make ground tactical vehicles that run on batteries in environments that are at the equator in, in temperatures that are so crazily diverse, you know, 140 degrees during the day and below 20 at night, batteries don't function, folks. If you take your cell phone out and you leave it in the sun, what happens? It gets too hot and turns off. We need to find, instead of saying just immediately do all this stuff, it's, it's like I was, it, we've got to crawl, walk, run. And we have to understand that that's, you know, batteries aren't produced here. So making us reliant on batteries is making us reliant on someone else. What do we have that we can do here? 
how, you know, solar panels, this new CHIPS Act, you know, puts a ton of money into solar panels. Well, the problem is solar panels don't ever biodegrade. Did you know that? A solar panel never will decompose. Neither will a wind turbine. Neither will a battery. So are we doing any benefit? We have to really start thinking about what it is as our end goal. And the end goal with the CMMC was to get everybody aware that everybody was just reliant as everybody else in this great industrial base. And if there was one weak link, we all had a weak link. And we needed to be America first. China, Iran, Israel, Pakistan, Turkey, the way they run, it's one team, one fight. We run Army fight, Navy fight, Air Force fight, Congress fight, Senator fight, President fight, party fight, you know, competitors on, you know, we don't, we don't look at our national defense as national defense. It's, it's, you know, he who has the most money has the most power. And it's a fight. And instead of being, you know, truly altruistic into what it was supposed to be, what our founding fathers wanted are, you know, originally was a Navy, a common defense, it's so convoluted, right? If we were to be in the Constitution, and I was really to take it to task and look at people and say, hey, listen, um, the Constitution has a provision to provide a common defense against our, our adversaries. Um, so if I say you all have to do this, do it. It's for the benefit and it's, it's, it's for the Constitution, do it. But we've, we've gotten so far off base. And, and that's what, you know, the Department of Defense is just as guilty as anybody else, right? The Army competes with the Air Force on, on you know, who's going to get the, the, the new bleeding edge technology. Why? Because they want more money in next year's cycle. And when we have programs that are archaic, antiquated, because we've said, well, it's going to have a 20-year life cycle and Congress won't let us off on that one, we keep weapon systems alive that are completely, you know, non-functioning, but we just keep doing it because we palmed it and we put it in. And, you know, if I take, if I say I don't need that money, I'm going to stop that program. Well, instead of Congress slapping us on the back and saying, good job, what do we need to put in fact, they take the money away and you never get it back. That's why we have all these crappy programs out there that, that shouldn't be. Is because the, the person, you know, in charge doesn't want to say, well, maybe we don't need this. Or maybe if I looked at this capability that service has, I won't need that. The money is power and they don't want to, they, they, they want to have their, their money because they've been through administrations. And I'm not saying, you know, any political party where they didn't put the military first, right? It was about the last thing on our budget, it seems. And, and that's why we, I mean, we, there, there are so many problems. These podcasts are going to go cray cray because there's so much stuff that I want to talk to people about. But the CMMC and how I got here, it wasn't because I wanted to be famous or rich or, or do any of that. I just want everyone to understand you all own this, this defense, our national defense. You as a U.S. taxpayer, a U.S. citizen, you own it. Do you feel confident in what you're delivering is something that you personally would accept? You worked at Deloitte. Were there times there were projects that you were delivering and be like, dude, this is not what they asked for. But they say, oh, no, but this is what the contract states. And you're like, no, no, that's not what they really wanted. Who is they? You're they. 
You guys understand that? You're the they. The people up that, that, that work in Washington and, and work at the Capitol building work for you. You're the they. You're, they're not smarter than you. In most cases, they're, they're, they're 100% factual they're not smarter than you. And if you don't understand that, then that's where the breakdown happens, right? Government was never set up to run your life. That's all for this episode of The Lojo Show. We want to thank Katie Arrington for coming on with us today. On the first of many in this exclusive series, exposing the truth about DOD security. Let us know what you think of a season two. And if you want to see updates on this series and more, follow our Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, and YouTube pages. If you have questions for Katie or want to come on the show, you can send us an email at show at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. We will be releasing a new episode in this series every Monday at 6 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. We hope you are excited as we are. With that, we will say goodbye, have a great week, stay safe, and stay secure.